like to begin tonight with a short quote from Thich Nhat Hanh. We are here to awaken from the illusion of our separateness. We are here to awaken from the illusion of our separateness. This is true whether we're doing insight of Vipassana meditation or metta, loving-kindness meditation. And this illusion of our separation has been with us since we were children, babies, where when we cried, when we felt our needs were unmet, when we felt not understood or heard. Times in our lives where we felt forgotten, as if we stand apart. And so through our practice, we look at breaking down this illusion It's an awakening of the heart. It's touching these places that have felt pain, have felt this desolation of separation. When we're in touch with that, it gives a lot of meaning to our practice. It inspires us. We're looking deeply into the places of suffering in our hearts. living at such a, during such a dark time on the planet where there's so much violence, there's so much hatred. And through our practice, seeking to embody states such as loving-kindness, drawing them forth in the world, can be very inspiring. We can be very motivated. And yet, as we practice, even with this great aspiration of heart, it can be really difficult at times, challenging. Sometimes we feel like we're living in a combat zone, just as we sit on our cushion. And so tonight, I'd like to speak about some of the challenges that we face as we do practice, what's commonly called the five hindrances. And tonight, speaking of them to remind us of these states, to remind us to look and see the different variations or flavors that these hindrances can have and also to highlight some of the ways these hindrances might appear when we're doing metta practice, so they can have a slightly different flavor. The word hindrance itself can set up a difficult relationship with these mind states. Hindrance, it sounds like it's something bad, wrong. Um, sets up judgment in our minds. And that is not so helpful. They're really just called hindrances because they hinder or obstruct the mind from clear seeing and from deepening concentration. And that's when they're present and left unrecognized then they become the filter through which we view our experience. When they're present, our minds uh, become fixated. Um, The mind can become quite brittle and rigid. An example of this can be when the state of desire is present in the mind. Just noticing what happens in the mind when it's there. You know, first some little desire arises. Then this desire turns into um, 
stronger wanting. And then it becomes this need, and it, then it becomes an urgent need. And at that time, we stop thinking about anything else, we lose context, and it's colored by our getting what we so urgently need. I've always loved um, the ways that animals and small children can teach us around these mind states. And Max is a dog who is a good friend of mine. And just having watched him in the state of desire, Max, who's a very loving dog a lot of the time, but then when you pick up a stick and you have that stick in your hand, suddenly his world narrows. His vision becomes really fixed. And you can actually see him tremble and quake as he looks at this stick. There is nothing else in the world at this moment. And he's no longer that loving, caring dog. He just wants that stick. And this is what happens when hindrances are present. That they really, um, we fixate around these experiences if we're not recognizing them. And so our job in practice becomes to, to learn to recognize these states when they're there. And by learning about these hindrances, it helps to depersonalize them. One time in my own practice, I'd been meditating for a couple of months when I started going through quite a difficult time. And at that time, I compared myself to some friends who had gone to India, sat with this teacher, and then just laughing with this teacher, they'd somehow got it. And then I remembered this as I was sitting there struggling and thinking, you know, I don't know what they got, but I want it and I don't have it. Um, And as a result, I started giving myself an even harder time you know, and I started fearing that I just wasn't good enough and that I never would be good enough and I'd be stru- stuck, stuck in struggle forever. This would be my life. And so, you know, this went on for a while. And then finally, out of desperation, I turned and really looked at my experience. <laughs> and sometimes we really have to be caught in it before we look. And so as I looked at my experience, what did I see? Desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt, the five hindrances. And you know, when I could see that, this is after, you know, having heard so many hindrance talks in my life, but, you know, suddenly there they were, and I could recognize them, and then it was like, oh, it's just the hindrances. You know, these are just passing mind states. They aren't, you know, the sum total of my being. And, you know, they didn't mean that I was going to have to spend the rest of my life in deep therapy, that I would forever suffer. They were just passing mind states. And when I could see them in that way, it really helped to depersonalize and to let go of them and just to see them like clouds in the sky. Tonight, when I speak about them, I usually start desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt. But for change, I'm going to begin with sleepiness. Um, I always get to the last few and I cram them in in the last five minutes. So (laughs) this is a safety mechanism. (laughs) So the first hindrance, sleepiness, often called sloth and torpor, can be experienced in the form of sleepiness, dullness, fogginess, laziness, apathy, and a lack of energy. There's an animal in Australia called the koala. And the koala is known to be a very sleepy animal. And it's really because it uh, eats eucalyptus leaves and that has something in it that kind of drug it into the sleepiness. So I'd always heard this about the koala. And then uh, one time I was practicing, doing a retreat, and it was out in the Australian bush. And I was fortunate enough to see a koala climbing a tree. As I watched this koala climbing the tree, you know, it would put one arm up, pull itself up, 
and then put the other arm up to another branch and pull itself up, and put the next arm up, pull itself up, put the next arm up, and boom, it fell asleep right there. <laughs> and when I saw this, it just reminded me of what practice can seem like, of how it can just, you know, we're, we're sitting here one moment thinking we're really wide awake, alert, and the next moment, oh, we're asleep. And then we wake up again, oh, yeah, meditating, here I am, and asleep again. You know, sometimes it just looks like that. So the sleepiness, it can come about for any number of reasons. You know, it's just a conditioned phenomena. And so conditions come together in a certain way, whether it's because, you know, before coming to the retreat, we had really busy, active lives, and we get here, and there's an unwinding process where we're getting in touch with a deeper level of sleepiness that we just don't touch into in our lives. It can come about because uh, we're used to intensity keeping us awake, alert. And then suddenly we're sitting here, we're either being with the breath or being with the phrases, and you know, there's no edge of excitement to it. And so we find ourselves sleepy. Sometimes we experience it because we aren't trained in being aware, awake, alert when experience is more neutral. Now this ties into that intensity, needing intensity. And so we find the mind becomes very dull. Sleepiness also comes about as our concentration deepens if it's not balanced with energy. So there's a number of different reasons why sleepiness can be there. And none of them say that it's because you're a horrible person. It's really just different conditions coming together. And so in our practice, we can just learn to recognize when sleepiness is there, we can become inclusive in our practice and find skillful means to work with it. If we're working with insight practice or if it's really overwhelming in metta practice, we might turn and look directly into this mind state to see what the experience of sleepiness is, to know the dullness, the heaviness, to know um, it might be that you discover that you fall asleep at the end of a breath where there's not uh, much happening. Or you might notice that it's when you have a thought and the thought disappears, or you kind of fall asleep with the thought. When mindfulness isn't so strong, sleepiness can be there. bringing the quality of investigation to the sleepiness helps to raise the energy. Helps if we are suffering from the um, sink, what's called sinking mind, which is where concentration is not in balance with energy, this helps to bring that energy level back up. So if we're doing insight practice, it can be helped by bringing in a bit more precise attention. You know, paying attention to the very beginning of the in-breath, the ending of the in-breath. We might include touch points in between the breaths, bringing in just a close attention. And in this way, we really work with aiming the mind for just one half breath. You know, it's that collecting of the attention to be with just one half breath. If we're working in metta practice and there's a lot of sleepiness, we can put a little bit more energy in trying to visualize whomever we're working with. Or really getting in touch with the meaning of the phrase. You know, again, we're just bringing in that little bit more energy to the mind. I've also found it really helpful in the metta practice to, at times, sing 
the phrases silently to myself. And I actually found that gospel works really well with sleepiness. So you can let there be a playful element with sleepiness. And it's really what's going to help support the mind in being present here. Some people have become very creative with it. You know, I heard of a woman who would go and sit in front of a tree, and then every time uh, she fell asleep, her head would hit the tree, and it would wake her up. Hoganson, uh, the Zen master whom uh, I have done some practice with, um, he talks about uh, being, doing a session, being really sleepy, and uh, wanting to sit up through the night. So he um, was noticing that he was falling asleep every night. So finally he just went up and he sat on the temple roof, which was a steeply pitched roof. And it was about one foot wide on the top. And he said, I went and I sat there and I was sure the fear, fear of falling uh, would keep me awake. And then he went on to say, and I was so surprised when I woke up in the morning and I was stretched out on the beam. <laughs> <laughs> You know, sleepiness is something that has plagued meditators for a very long time. And I always find it comforting to hear the story of Magalana, one of the chief uh, disciples of the Buddha. And it's said in the week before he attained full enlightenment, he was dealing with sleepiness. So, you know, really don't take it personally. But do rise up to the challenge of it to just come to know this state. You know, how much of our lives do we spend sleeping? And what can we actually say about it? Or, you know, in this state of dullness. So really looking, inquiring. Sometimes we'll find that the sleepiness is there when we're getting close to something that's painful. When, um, you know, there's some level of suffering that the mind might be starting to touch into, and yet we're not really ready to open to it. And that's not a judgment. You know, we need to work with developing steadiness in our practice to be able to open. So we work with staying steady in working with the sleepiness and to also notice if there's other mind states that are there. Simple ways of working with sleepiness. Sitting with your eyes open helps to bring in light. And, you know, I've noticed in my own practice that saying eyes open doesn't mean eyes open and downcast because that's not very far back to sleepiness. You know, that I've found that it's um, just too easy they shut again before I've even realized it. So I found it really helpful to raise the eyes so that you're actually looking up. And then, you know, it can get really intense to be with the sensations. And you just stay with the sensations. And that becomes so excruciating, that will wake you up, if nothing else. Um, <clears throat> looking at the light, really helpful. Helps to brighten the mind. Uh, bringing in that quality of lightness to the mind. Before coming into a sitting, if you've been experiencing a lot of sleepiness, splash cold water on your face. When you're doing walking meditation, walking quicker helps to lift the energy. I've also found it really helpful at times to walk backwards. And it's helpful because we don't have the habit of walking backwards. So it's, you know, kind of has the, like walking in the dark where you really have to be alert, aware. Walking backwards helps to be aware. If it's a period where the sleepiness seems unending, we might walk a lot more than we sit. You know, one time when it was really strong for me, my teacher just instructed me to sit no more than 30 minutes and then walk for an hour minimum. 
And, you know, at that time I ended up doing some quite long walking sessions. And that did help me to touch into underlying states that were there that I had been numbing out to. We find in practicing at the Forest Refuge, where we don't have the group support, that this can be a really unwieldy mind state to work with and does require a strong sense of commitment. That, uh, you know, if we wake up in the morning and we're really sleepy and we just start to go sleepy, sleepy, you know, we'll be asleep again in a moment. You know, if you know that that's your habit, make the resolve to get up as soon as you wake up. You know, that as soon as consciousness is there, you just get the body upright. Also, uh, you might want to sit in the hall more. Because I know the times where I've been in my room and my bed is right there. You know, (laughs) it's such a challenge. (laughs) And so come and sit in here. You know, and it it just gives support. If you're sitting in a chair, don't sit back. Sit upright. And, you know, if you're bobbing, weaving, um, it's okay. But, you know, I've watched too. As soon as I sit back, there's this collapsing of energy if I'm tired. And, you know, pull. The next thing I know, very asleep. So um, just watching that you're not making yourself too comfortable. You know, we can have this desire to, as we meditate, want to step into a cocoon where we can just curl up. And it's not so helpful. Sometimes when you're sleepy, sitting with a bit of a chill. And I mean, not, you know, not so you're sitting in a draft going to get a cold, but just so you're not so toasty warm, where you can feel that coolness. That, too, can help. <clears throat> And to remember that as we work with sleepiness, even though at times it's so overwhelming, if we really stay steady with it, we're cultivating a resolve of the heart in being able to stay steady even when experience is unpleasant. We're developing patience. Uh, We're working with kindness, staying kind to ourselves rather than judging ourselves, and really working with acceptance. The most debilitating form of this hindrance is when we move into lethargy, when we become listless in our practice, can set up that habit in our lives where we're just listlessly moving through life. There's apathy present, no sense of urgency, no sense of how precious this moment is. And so it is important to watch for this complacency that can come in to our lives, our practice, and as a means of working with it, to uh, take time to reflect on the inevitability of death, how one day this body, this mind, as we know it, will cease to be. It's inevitable to reflect on impermanence, the changing conditions of life. This is not to bring up fear, not to set us in a state of panic, but to really bring to our minds the truth of impermanence in a way that helps us to utilize these conditions, that honors and acknowledges the preciousness of this life, the preciousness of these conditions, and how valuable it is to have this body, this mind, this time to do this work. 
the next of the hindrances is restlessness. It's where the mind is agitated, anxious, worrisome. It's often called worry and flurry. There's a jumpiness in the mind. The mind can't rest on whatever meditation object we're using. We might find that the the, the thinking mind is continually present, wandering, thinking, um, fantasizing. We might find that we're endlessly replaying old memories or that we're obsessively planning about the future. Sometimes we might experience the restlessness in the body where there's just an abundance of energy and it's so hard to sit still. You know, it can feel like um, the body's really jumpy, twitching, moving, you can have an arm fling, a leg fling. Um, sometimes the, it's just pulsating so strongly we feel like we just want to jump up and scream and run out of the room. Restlessness is present to see if we can first recognize it and then notice if there is an underlying mind state. You know, f- um, often when we're obsessively planning the future, fear is fueling this. There's insecurity. And you know, it's as if we keep planning and planning, trying to make ourselves more secure in the future, but it's only through fantasy but it's fueled by this fear and insecurity. Or if we find that we're constantly replaying uh, past events, we might notice if there's guilt present. You know, guilt is so lacerating and such a downward spiral. It's really natural that as we practice, there will be memories from the past pop up. But we do need to learn to recognize the feelings that are present so that we don't get endlessly caught in these loops. Sometimes we might notice, if we start paying attention to restlessness, that there's been something unpleasant in our experience that we haven't paid attention to. And so, as a means of getting away from this experience, the mind starts looking at other experiences. There's two quite opposite ways of working with restlessness. One is because there's so much energy present in the mind, it can be helpful to balance it with more concentration. So if if we're doing Vipassana meditation, we might want to just make a strong resolve to be with the breath. And so whatever else arises, in our experience, we simply let go and return to the breath. And maybe only being there for a short moment, but then coming back again. And we just keep coming back over and over and over, and that will help to build the concentration. Or we could use the physical sensations as our object of concentration. And because and with restlessness they can be very strong, the mind can actually concentrate quite quickly and come back into balance. If we're working in metta practice, it can be helpful to work in the simplest way possible when the restlessness is there, and to uh, keep the phrases really simple so that there's a direct connection that uh, happens with each phrase. It can also be helpful at giving a container to the restlessness where we make a vow not to move. And then we simply observe the experience. We experience restlessness and know of its qualities. 
know of the agitation, the energy, the pulsations, the jumpiness, and just experience these unpleasant qualities without needing to run, without needing to change it, but just to be with it. And it's really a great way to learn to be with unpleasant experience. There are times when the energy feels so huge that it seems impossible to work with it through uh, a really focused concentration. And at these times, we let the awareness go bigger. So if we're sitting in Vipassana practice, um, rather than just being with the breath, we open to the totality of the experience and maybe paying attention more to hearing. You know, hearing can happen in a vast field of awareness. So we simply sit, listen. And then the pulsations of restlessness are there, but they're happening within this big field of awareness. And we pay attention to whatever else is also happening. I found in metta practice, when restlessness is there and very strong, that sometimes it's really helpful to work with all beings and just to let the metta be huge, encompassing everything. And with that, there's a softening, accepting. There's an inclusiveness that includes this quality of restlessness. Sometimes to walk out in nature when restlessness is strong. And just opening, allowing, receiving, being a part of nature. The movement of the energy, not being separate. There's been times in my own practice where it's been hard to detect restlessness, even though it's so unpleasant. And, you know, there's just this knowing of some agitation. Um, And, you know, sometimes I'll notice it because I sit down and there's continual wanting to shift the posture. Or I sit down and uh, decide to do vipassana, and then suddenly metta seems like a better practice. And then, you know, I'll think, oh, no, maybe I should sit with really open awareness. Oh, no, maybe I should focus. And, you know, just not being able to settle into a way of practice can just be a form of restlessness. In metta practice, I've seen it um, emerge in the way of not being able to settle on one person to work with. And, you know, just going through person after person, and nobody seems quite right. Or else, you know, suddenly my phrases don't seem quite right. And looking for the perfect phrase and not being able to find it. Just another form of restlessness. And then I've noticed with restlessness, as soon as it's detected, as soon as it can be named, that changes the relationship to it. You know, you don't have to be run by it then. It can be, you know, just like seeing that cloud in the sky. It's the energy of restlessness. This is the momentary truth of this experience. The next hindrance is that of doubt. Doubt being skeptical doubt in the, in the form of a hindrance. I mean, it's important to recognize there are there's skeptical doubt which leads us into endlessly speculating about our experience. Uh, you know, we might find that we sit here and we compare Buddhist traditions, or we might find um, we're comparing, thinking about our experience over and over again. Um, trying to figure out how things should be. And it separates us, removes us from experience. And then there's a kind of doubt that is more a form of inquiry, where we aren't sure, 
So we're looking into experience to come to know. That form of inquiry is very helpful in practice. But when we stay on the level of endless speculation, then it actually has a um, crippling force. You know, it tends to stop us in our practice, to separate us. Sometimes we'll find in practice that doubt is very strong and keeps arising over and over again. And the tendency at these times is to want to come to a definitive conclusion so that we aren't caught in the agony of doubt, because it is a very agonizing state. We want to make it go away. And yet, what is helpful when doubt is present is to stay open, to look, to connect with experience in this very moment, just as it is. And that's the important part, to really connect into this moment. Because when we come close to our experience in this moment, there's not any room for doubt to arise. And this is where doubt will turn into the healthy inquiry. I think it's important to recognize that doubt will often arise when we have low energy, we're tired, uh, can happen when we're facing health challenges, health issues. And so for me, you know, when I'm tired and suddenly, you know, I can't do this, I'm no good, or this practice isn't right, whatever form of doubt we might be um, coming in contact with. And then I realize, oh yeah, tiredness is there too. Um, That that is part of the conditioned phenomena and it's unfolding. And that, you know, with this low energy, it is a place that doubt creeps in. And so when I see that, it helps me to not so believe, become so identified with the doubt. And that's the problem with doubt, is because we so often so believe it to be true. You know, we give a lot of weight to thoughts of doubt. And that's where it's helpful to to recognize that it is just a thought. Can we see it on the level of just thinking, another appearance in the mind. <clears throat> in metta practice, sometimes we'll experience doubt in the doubt about our ability to do metta, the doubt about our ability to love, our worthiness of being loved and whether someone else is worthy of our love. And it sends the mind into turmoil. It undermines our practice. So learning to recognize, so important. Doubt can be balanced by developing faith. And faith is crucial to our practice. This is not to have a blind faith to simply believe in the teachings, but to come to the place of having verified faith. So in the beginning, there is a bit of a risk. You know, we don't know for sure what happens as we do this practice. And we have to do it, in a sense, with beginner's mind to let go of our ideas. It's the only place, only way that we'll come to know for ourselves. So it, when doubt is present, it doesn't allow us to take that risk. But if we can begin in little ways, by just turning to this moment, to this experience, we will start to gain verified faith. We will start to see and know things in our own experience that helps confidence to build, that helps a conviction, a strength of heart 
to know that we can trust in this movement of our hearts towards awakening. When doubt is strong, to sometimes give voice to the doubt, to you know, seek guidance from teachers, to uh, reflect on aspects of the teachings that do inspire us, that help us to um, overcome that doubt. And I always like to remember the words of the Buddha when he said, if it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. With doubt, it's important to remember that it will pop up until we have a really unshakable faith. You know, when we have really clearly seen the truth of the way things are for ourselves, there will be moments when our vision is clouded by doubt. And so when it happens, to know it's just a part of this path, to be able to recognize it so it doesn't have its power over us, to learn to rest in the place where we don't know, where we um, don't see clearly, but we allow the attention to stabilize in this moment. We learn to rest in insecurity with kindness and acceptance. And this does take a lot of faith. The next hindrance is that of desire. And I'm really glad now I did this talk in reverse order because (laughs) the next two hindrances Sharda has uh, spoken about in the last talk, um, desire being the near enemy of metta and talking about it in the way of attachment. Uh, So it's nice that I can go into less detail on this one. Um, But important to recognize it as a hindrance in the mind, to know this state of craving, wanting, you know, can happen through any of the sense doors where we're wanting pleasurable experience. Um, <clears throat> it's where there's a wanting, a needing of something else in order to be happy, uh, where we become tantalized with desire wanting attachment. This is something that Winnie the Pooh had a good understanding of. He said, although eating honey was a very good thing to do, there's a moment just before you begin to eat it, which is even better than when you do. But he didn't know what it was called. Well, it's called (laughs) desire. (laughs) we, We get enchanted by our desires. You know, they just have such a hold over us. In metta practice, there's a few ways that we can experience this um, desire or attachment. You know, it can um, come in when we're offering the phrases so that we'll get something back, so that we'll have some pleasant experience. And we, we're work, trying to work in a way where we will benefit the most, rather than looking at this offering from the heart. Sometimes when we are offering metta, we might get caught in wanting the person to receive it, you know, and really um, fixated on that wanting. And, and it can be really subtle, too. 
I noticed this one time when I was working with the neutral person in intensive practice. And I had been working with them for a couple of days, I think. And then they came in one day um, hobbling on a cast. And, you know, it was kind of a bit devastating. I wasn't sure if my metta wasn't strong enough, that it hadn't protected them, or if they hadn't been open to receiving it (laughs) and staying protected. But there was, you know, some element of wanting in there. Or, you know, I've also heard from some people before where when they're trying to select their phrases, it's like they're trying to select a shopping list of phrases and qualities that they would most like the recipient to have. So that person could be just who they'd like them to be. And, you know, it's just loaded with desire. Another way in metta practice that we might experience um, desire, attachment, is touching into sentimentality, where we're working with somebody and suddenly we become quite sentimental about this person. You know, we remember all the wonderful things I've ever done. And there is a part of the practice that is reflecting on the goodness. But this is where we just kind of start getting really glossy-eyed, thinking of this person. And there's an element of delusion in it. You know, that we aren't really loving this person in the totality, but just kind of drifting with this sentimental feeling, pleasant feeling about this person. When doing metta practice, to remember if we keep seeing this desire, attachment, uh, rising up over and over again, This is just a part of the practice, a part of seeing where this attachment creeps in. This is how we learn to distinguish what's metta and what's not metta. Another way that we experience this desire in our practice is when we are continually seeking intensity in practice. And sometimes um, we might not even care if it's painful feelings in our practice. We just want intensity. We just want to have that feeling that we're really working in our practice. And yet, it's uh, fueled by desire. Or when we become attached to having peak experiences in the practice, where we're always wanting to be on top of the mountain, or we're wanting greater and greater meditative attainments or experiences. And so just to notice when you sit down, if there's an agenda, if there's some idea, um, some form of expectation, about what this period of practice might be and see if you can let it go. Again, really just coming into a direct relationship with this hindrance. The last of the hindrances in this order being aversion. No aversion being hatred, anger, ill will. Um, can also be, as Sharda said, fear. And as was said, this is the far enemy of metta, the opposite of metta. And metta most definitely can bring up aversion. 
it being um, the far enemy. In the metta practice, when anger is arising, when we're becoming filled with anger, it can be helpful to take time to reconnect with that person as a human being, a living being. Because it does happen when we move into anger, we move into separation, um, we stop seeing the other being. And you know, I noticed that one time when I was doing a retreat, um, it was a retreat out in the country, and I was spending a lot of time sitting on the porch of this cabin. It was really lovely. And then one day there came some mice that just came tumbling across the, the front of the porch. And you know, at first I thought there was ten mice, and then they kind of disentangled, and I discovered that there was only two. And I've never had a strong liking for mice. You know, they like the same foods I like. They leave their droppings everywhere. They tend to make a mess. And they kind of just make me edgy. So, you know, when I discovered these mice that were coming back quite often and just were kind of rolling across the balcony, at first I was filled with aversion. And then this property where I was practicing had a cat that lived there. You know, I knew I couldn't myself kill the mice, but then I started to think, hmm, well, if the cat killed the mice, then that wouldn't exactly be breaking the precepts. So, you know, if I kind of hoped that the cat would kill the mice. (laughs) And then, as time went on, I started to notice uh, more qualities about these little mice. There's just two of them. And one of them was really quite brave. And, you know, he would come... I don't know why I say he, but it (laughs) would come bounding out and would see me and would just look at me and no problem, would just go on. And this mouse I named Trouble. The other one I named Double. They were double trouble to me. And the other one, Double was a little bit more timid and would, you know, come bounding out in this tumble and then look at me and (laughs) run away. (laughs) And, you know, I started getting more and more affection for these mice. And then one day, the cat came. And suddenly I was in this panic. Where are the mice? Oh no, the cat's going to get the mice. And I was really concerned for their well-being. And I realized, you know, from the place of disconnection, from where I was aversive to them, I wasn't touching in to their being a living being, their, their just being, you know. And, and when I could do that, I cared for them. You know, and I felt like I cared quite deeply for these two little beings. And as far as I know, the cat never got the mice in that time. But that's what we need to do when aversion starts arising in the practice. Just come back to that, that level of seeing someone else as a living being. <coughs> Metta also helping to work with um, fear. Shada mentioned that's a form of aversion. And it really starts to counteract, bringing a sense of safety, um, an openness, an accepting of the way things are. Metta also works with the form of aversion of the judging mind where, you know, it's a, the judging mind is again this place of separation. Uh, um, and so it helps us to soften. You know, and I saw this really clearly one time doing metta practice in Burma. And, you know, it was at a time I'd been doing vipassana practice and then told to do some metta practice. And, you know, I'd been really judgmental of what was happening around me. I was struggling with the cultural differences. Uh, Just a lot of judgment in the mind. And so, at that time when I shifted practices, because you can walk quicker in doing metta practice, I went outside to walk. You know, it was really cramped quarters all around. And really the only spacious place I could find to walk was right near the toilets. 
And so I was walking there, sending metta, and I decided just to send a metta to whoever came by. And I discovered everybody uses the toilets. So it didn't matter who they were. They seemed to come by at some point. And that helped break down this tendency to judge. You know, and it became so freeing. I didn't have to judge whether the person was worthy of this loving kindness. I could just offer to metta to whomever appeared. And there was just such a lot more ease and peace in the mind at that time. <clears throat> metta really being... Uh, and it's been an antidote to anger, it works in the way of calming, cooling the mind. You know, when the mind is filled with anger, it can be likened to a really hot iron rod. And as we drop each phrase of loving-kindness, it just helps to cool that rod. And, you know, it does give off that whoosh as the, the, the water hits the hot rod. But then there's a cooling that happens. These last two hindrances of desire and aversion can be very strong in practice and require a lot of patience. The roots of them go very deep. And so we do have to be kind with ourselves in the working with them. We do have to be very, very patient at times. And for me, it's been a great, I don't know, help to just know that at least I'm seeing these. At least I'm seeing, recognizing these forces that so often drive our lives. With the hindrances, to know that they don't always arise uh, one at a time, that they often come in packages. You know, we get a package of hindrances, multiple hindrances, and can attack with great strength. So just we begin to work with them with what's ever most predominant, the recognition, and to, as we, we unpack this package. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, even though we may have the best of strategies in working with these hindrances, we often discover as soon as we start to feel quite competent in working with one variety, a new garden variety will emerge. And so this too, taking great patience to work with. But to know that it's not just hindrances that we experience on the cushion, but these are difficulties that we encounter in our lives. And if we have the willingness to work with them, if we have that strength of heart and mind to simply face these challenges, it will help us to face the difficulties in our lives. It will help us to learn to use whatever conditions are happening in our experience as the vehicle for liberation. There's a poem by an Australian poet named Michael Lunick that I really love that uh, kind of says something about this. It's called The Common Cold. God bless those who suffer from the common cold. Nature has entered into them, has led them aside and gently laying them low to contemplate life from the wayside, to consider human frailty to receive the deep and dreamy messages of fever. We give thanks for the insights of this humble perspective. We give thanks for blessings in disguise. When we use these often difficult conditions, they can become blessings in disguise. They can be here to wake us up. They can be this vehicle for liberation. our practice being to recognize these hindrances, to know of their qualities, to cease to nourish these hindrances, to cease to feed them. They lose their power. 
they lose the conditions that need to be present in order for them to arise. When the Buddha talked about the five hindrances, he pointed out that our bodies live on nourishment and cannot live without nourishment. And in the same way, he said the hindrances live on nourishment and cannot live without nourishment. And so our job is to simply cease to nourish these hindrances. Let's just sit for a moment. May all beings come to know the peace and the freedom of the unhindered mind.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.